Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. First week of school in fourth grade, I go home. I'm like, hey, dad, the kids like, they, they told me choose you out. You know what that is? And he goes, no, how they say it. And, and I said, well, it's like, choose you out. I'm going to see you after school and we're going to fight. And he goes, oh, okay. So I remember being in fourth grade. My dad's like, okay, what's up? I got to teach you how to fight. Okay. And so here I am, you know, in my garage, in the suburbs going, oh my God, okay, I got to fight. My grandmother comes out and she comes out and she's like, right, that looks good. She was, I don't know why she was at that. She goes, that looks good. And she says, and she goes, now listen, you make sure that he takes off his rings. Okay. Cause we don't know if they fight dirty. And so I was like, okay, rings, got it. And then she comes and she says, and you cover your stuff, son. And I was like, what? And she puts her hand down by, you know, like her crotch area. And she's like, you protect those. So one hand up, make sure there's no rings. And I remember thinking like, this is crazy. I looked over at my dad and he's kind of like, ah, just let her say what she's going to say. And then we go back and he's like, okay, you hold your hands like this. You move like this. He goes, your heart rate's going to come up. He goes, it's fine. He goes, this fight's only going to last a couple seconds. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Michael, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, I'm happy to be here with you. Thank you. Oh, it is my pleasure to have you here. When I found out that you had a new book out called The First Rule of Mastery, uh, you know, my mutual, our mutual friend Akshay connected us again. And this was like a no brainer. I was like, I've had Michael before and he was amazing. So I definitely want him back. <laughs> and I was thrilled to see that you have written a book. Um, and it was such a different perspective on mastery than I've ever seen before. But before we get into the book, uh, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping what you ended up doing? with your life and your career? A great question. And you are the first person that's asked me that um, over the 20 plus years of, of doing this work. So uh, origin story is that my dad and my, my mom and my dad, uh, you know, were 70s children. And so they dropped out, moved to a farm in the middle of nowhere in Virginia and said, we're, we're not doing the city life. We're not doing the traditional life. We're going to go grab some roots on a farm and uh, live an organic, if you will, way of living. And so it was, you know, again, they were like in their twenties and the seventies. So it was that era. And so dad 
for the first part of my life, I, I just worked around the farm. Like he's like, I'm, I'm going to barter. I'm going to figure, we've got a, a little bit of money we saved up and, you know, we're just going to do odds and ends around, you know, the local neighborhood. So it was super hippie, if you will. And then there was a point, I don't really remember the time. I think I was somewhere around 10 years old where my dad all of a sudden was gone a bunch because he got a corporate job and he got a job in sales. And um, he was very excited about it. And I remember there was good stability. It was exciting. He was around less, of course, but I was around less because I was at school. And then before you knew it, it was fourth grade, I think it was. I was in California. And so I went from the farm to the suburbs of Northern California. And I had everything but a piece of straw and, you know, overalls that, you know, I showed up on the first day <laughs> and, uh, to school. And so, so mom stayed at home. Mom uh, was committed to the family structure and dad was committed to, you know, going out in the world and, and making some money to bring back to the, to the structure. So that's the way it worked. And he stayed that path for a long time, found himself in entrepreneurship. And then uh, the latter part of his, his career was in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about the transition from being like a farm boy to Northern California life, because you talk so much about other people's opinions in the book. And I think that that's such a, a perfect jump off point, like adapting to this sort of new world in which you're kind of like a fish out of water. Oh, you nailed it. So I did. I didn't know any better. I showed up first day of school, um, completely different than every other kid. Come to find out my parents had very little respect for stability. So I changed schools mid-year like seven times. So um, I would be around for a few years. I get to have a social group. And then uh, when a different opportunity created, they take it and they're like, yeah, we'll figure it out together as a family. And so so the first transition I had, you know, at a young age in fourth grade, I remember not knowing any better. I showed up and all of a sudden I realized that like, oh, I'm different. There's some heat in the environment. And I found myself going home. It was like a first week of school in fourth grade. And I, I go home and um, I'm like, hey, dad, the kids like, they, they told me, choose you out. You know what that is? And he goes, no, how'd they say it? And, and I said, well, it's like, choose you out. You know, like, I'm going to see you after school and we're going to fight. And he goes, oh, okay. So I remember being in fourth grade. My dad's like, okay, so I got to teach you how to fight. Okay. And so again, I'm like from the back country of Virginia, you know, I've, I've got that country strength. You know, I had to figure out some re- reliance on self because my parents are very laissez-faire, which basically means we're going to let natural consequences teach you. And so rules were, were just kind of suggestions. But when, when you're on the farm and the lights go down and, you know, you're three acres out in the backyard. And when I say the lights go down, I meant the sun goes down and you're three acres out. Like you got to figure a way to get back to the house safely. And that, that's not fun. You know, it's a little easier when you're walking back, you know, with some light. So you've got to, I had to learn how to navigate. And so here I am, you know, in my garage in the suburbs going, oh my God, okay, I got to fight. My grandmother comes out. My dad's uh, got the Irish side. My mom's got the Italian side. So defending oneself is part of the ecosystem. And she comes out and she's like, right, that looks good. She was, I don't know why she was at the house. She goes, that looks good. And she says, and she goes, now listen, you make sure that he takes off his rings, okay? Because we don't know if they fight dirty. So you make sure, and she came, 
she came from um, Pearl Street in uh, Massachusetts, which is a, you know, like a, a little bit of a, a tougher side. And so, and so I was like, okay, rings, got it. And then she comes and she says, and you cover your stuff, son. And I was like, what? And she puts her hand down by, you know, like her crotch area. And she's like, you protect those. So one hand up, make sure there's no rings. And, and so I was like, I remember thinking like, this is crazy. I looked over at my dad and he's kind of like, ah, just let her say what she's going to say. And then we go back and he's like, okay, you hold your hands like this. You move like this. He goes, your heart rate's going to come up. He goes, it's fine. He goes, this fight's only going to last a couple seconds. He goes, no one really wants to see a fight. It's fine. And so everyone's going to jump in. I was like, Are you sure. And so I was a scared little kid. It was like my, I don't know, fifth day of school. And, um, so, uh, that happened. That story happened in, uh, fourth grade. It happened in sixth grade. Um, it happened in eighth grade and it happened, uh, ninth grade when I started. So that's, that was my transitions. <laughs> wow. I'm just like trying to imagine Indian parents like teaching their kids how to fight. Like, you know, they're like, no, go you know, focus on your studies. Don't bother letting people beat you up. <laughs> no. What was my dad? Honestly, what was my, I love my dad. What was he thinking? You know, like that, but that was just kind of, he grew up in New York City and he's like, you got to know how to take care of yourself, son. And, you know, he didn't want me to learn those things because that's why I went to the farm. And then, but here we are in the city, suburbs. And so that was a little bit of my upbringing. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, one area I want to start exploring this idea of performance is something we both have in common, which I remember from our last conversation is that we're both surfers. Uh, so talk to me about sort of your experience of learning how to surf, because I know the Santa Cruz area. From, from what I hear, it's pretty territorial and uh, they don't take kindly to people who don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. So let me just hit surfing. You know, the image of surfing for a moment is that you see, you know, well-tanned, highly fit, smiles, everyone's chill. You know, that's the last vibe that happens in the water. So that happens on the beach, okay? <laughs> but in the water, there's a precious commodity. There's only three waves every 15 minutes on a good day. And you've got, I don't know, anywhere between 12 and 50 people fighting for those, competing for those three waves. And so it's on. It is and sometimes if the waves are consequential or risky in some respects, you've got the element of navigating mother nature. You make a mistake, you get held under, you roll around with your fins, blah, 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 blah. And then you've also got the, the human element where you're competing to put yourself in the right position. And oftentimes the right position is, is the riskiest position because somebody else isn't willing to go that deep into that part of the wave because you're more likely to get held under. So you learn how to work with, um, in a competitive way, you learn how to work with mother nature and you learn how to figure out how to position yourself right at that threshold of risk versus skill. And of course, um, each wave is always new. So everything is brand new. So there's an aliveness now that happens. Um, if you, if you fall in love with the, the culture and the process of getting better at surfing. Yeah. Well, I think that to me, I, surfing was one of those things that one, it, it taught me how to be present. Like, I don't think I ever truly understood how or what it meant to be present until I surfed. And I didn't realize it until I started digging into the work of Stephen Kotler, but like, it was like the like highest flow activity in my life. And I started to notice that it just started to translate into every other area of my life. And, you know, at first my parents were like, oh, you're turning into some sort of beach bum. And then they suddenly saw all these positive changes, the sort of ripple effect of 
weight. You don't stay out late. You don't drink as much. You don't party as much. You're losing weight. You look better at 30 than you did at 20. They're like, okay, we're, we're good with this. Um, but you know, like speaking of the, the sort of risk, like I, to this day, will never forget. I was in Venice beach at the breakwater. And I remember some young guy didn't go on a wave and some old guy chewed him out, not because he dropped in because he didn't go. Yeah. How about it? I mean, if you, let's say you're at, um, if you're at a, a surf break and you choose not to go because you don't think you have the skill because you're scared because of lots of reasons, um, you're, you're likely going to get boxed out, iced out. Like, no, you've just lost respect of the, the tribe there. And, um, yeah, you've basically blown your reputation in that way where they're just like, oh, okay. And they squeeze you, literally, they squeeze you into the part of the wave that you can't catch it. And, um, yeah. So hey, again, uh, that's a competitive side of surfing and there's other parts that are wonderful. And I'm not saying this is bad, but. Yeah, th- there's, there's definitely a pack mentality to take place out there. Mm-hmm. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. 
It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I think that it makes a, such a perfect segue into the opening of the book where you say that when we give more value to other people's opinions than our own, we live life on their terms, not ours, which it's kind of funny because in the water, other people's opinions kind of matters, uh, as you pointed out. But first, walk me through the trajectory of, of what led you to writing this book uh, at this time, because I know that you were kind of the go-to guy as far as high performance. Like, I, I think at this point, your name is synonymous with the phrase high performance. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. So, okay, let's let's pull apart two things. And um, the subtitle of the book is Stop Worrying About What People Think of You. And so the subtitle is not Stop Caring About What People Think About You, right? So caring, we do need to care about people's opinions, but there are there are people and um, there are people that are more informed that their opinions matter more. So this is not not care about anything or anyone, but this is knowing who to care from. More importantly, this is about um, making a decision to not worry about what people think of you. So where did it start for me? I was 15 years old, back to teenage years. It's of course so much happens for so many of us. And I'd saved up money to buy my first car. It was, I worked a couple summers, 16 years old, and um, Mazda B2200, just to paint the picture, pickup truck. And so uh, it's cost about three grand and I'm driving and I can recognize that somebody is about to pass me going in the same direction, just a little bit faster than me. And I, I prop up my posture. I grab my steering wheel just like to look cool in a certain way. And I'm leaning and I'm like, I wonder what they're going to think of me. And I look over as they're passing because I was feeling it. Okay. I look over. They didn't even look. They had, they had zero interest in me. And I thought, which by the way is how life happens. But I thought to myself, what am I doing? What, what did I just do? I completely changed my experience in my own car. I've, I've lost track of the music I was enjoying. What am I doing? I'm doing this for the approval of somebody else. I don't even know this person. And so it struck me in that moment that what a disaster of a way to, to go through life. I don't think I changed it enough because I ended up being embarrassed by how often I've, I, I adjusted myself to be liked by somebody else. And then I started working, you know, with some of the best in the world. And I started to realize that they had that similar experience as well. And the opinions of others created this constriction for them where, um, you know, they, they were fighting, competing to be true to their potential as opposed to being worried about all the things that could go wrong and how others would view them when they really, you know, put themselves out there. And so, so anyways, that's the origin story. That's how it started. And I started to recognize it in other people. And I said, there's something here. And come to find out there's real biological reasons why I, they, and I think many of us have this attunement to and give high value to what other people are thinking about us. And it would make sense 
it make when you understand the biology, it makes sense of why we go through life this way. And it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think that that was what struck me the most about this, because whenever I've had other guests here to talk specifically about performance, uh, people like Stephen Kotler and um, people like Anders Ericsson always tends to focus around sort of habits, you know, mindset. You're taking this perspective of the fear of other people's opinions as sort of the foundation for mastery at the highest level. And like, I don't think most of us, when we see these sort of iconic figures, many of the people who are your clients, people you've worked with, people who've won Super Bowls, that we think about them being like overly preoccupied with other people's opinions. Like, so how is that sort of the foundation and baseline from which you sort of start with? Okay. So the first rule of mastery, title of the book, but if there are a set of rules, which, you know, I'm having fun with the title, but the first rule is to work from the inside out. And so worrying about what other people are tuning to what other people are thinking about you is a way to work from the outside in. So we're flipping it on its head. And when you work from the inside out, when you invest in your psychological processes and your principles and practices, when you work from the inside out, it is a natural freedom that takes place that you stop. You, 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 you're more interested in the signal and you stop worrying about what other people will think. So there's freedom on the other side. So yeah, they, um, take even some of the most rugged sports like NFL, like rugby, you know, like rugged sports that even in those environments, they're not overly concerned about getting hurt. They've accepted it. They're like, listen, injury is part of the game here. But take another sport like less rugged for sure, like basketball. Why do we have any? Why do we have so much anxiety? Why would they go into an environment and, um, you know, have their heart rate elevated for one reason? It's because they don't want to look bad. They don't want to look stupid. They don't want to let people down. They don't want to, you know, do something unbecoming to their family, to themselves. Basically, they just don't want to look a certain way. They want to be accepted and they want to avoid being rejected. That's what that is at the center of this whole thing. Our brain, this three pounds of tissue that sits in our skull is millions of years old of programming and it has one primary dictum, survival. So it scans the world to find all the things that could go wrong, all the little micro dangers. And then it responds in a very predictable way to keep us alive. But that's not what we're, but that's not what this community, your community, that's not what, how I want to live life. What we want to do is we want to thrive. We want to flourish. We want to have a buoyancy in life. We want to know that we have purpose and meaning, not just survival. So we, we need to work with our software to optimize the hardware. Hardware is the brain, software is the mind. And I'm oversimplifying a very complex, nuanced interaction between brain and mind. Yeah. Well, so you say that if you're overly influenced by outside forces, such as other people's opinions or societal pressures, they can box you in and limit what's possible. The best performers in the world push past the perceived limitations, limits of human potential and expand our notions of what's possible. So the question then is how? How in the world do you do that? Because you also talk about the role of social media and how there's this world in which we are basically 
comparing our lives to the highlight reels of everybody else's. And, you know, your life always seems pathetic when you see the highlight reels of everybody else's as you scroll through social media. Yeah. So is the, the question here is, um, how do we push past the perceived limits? Yeah. Well, how do we start to get to the point where we don't let other people's opinions drive so much of what we do? Okay. So David Foster Wallace, one of the great, you know, writers, poets, um, he's got this beautiful insight and it's a funny little story that he sets up and it's about two young fish. And, and so there's an old fish that is swimming in the opposite direction of two young fish. And, you know, the old fish nods and says, morning boys, how's the water? And then the two young fish swim on for a little bit. And then they eventually look at each other. And one of them says, the hell is water? But then the older fish's question about how's the water, it was meant to invoke in the young fish for them to think about their own reality. Think about the things that are so ingrained in their existence that they fail to notice them. So that's what I hope this book is really about, is that most of us are swimming in the water of trying to figure out if we're okay in the eyes of others, as opposed to what the extraordinaries do. They, they make fundamental commitments in their life. So these fundamental commitments are so important, they are so clear to them that they also fully push in towards those fundamental commitments. For example, Luke Akins gives me a call and you likely haven't heard the name Luke Akins. And so he's one of the best in the world when it comes to um, anything jumping from a plane, jumping from, you know, base jumping or wingsuits or, or parachutes. He's, hands down one of the five best in the world. And he calls and he says, hey, Mike, I got a project. Said, okay. He says, I want to jump out of a plane at 30,000 feet, which means it's about where most of us fly if we're going anywhere, you know, on a jetliner. And he says, I want to jump out and I want to not have a parachute. And I want to build a 16-story net that's about the size of a four-car garage. I want to see if I can hit that thing. I think I can do it. I said, wait a minute. You want to jump out of a plane without a parachute into a net that you and your buddies are going to build? I said, yeah. I said, and he, said, and he pauses and he goes, are you in? And so those are the projects and the people I get to work with. So when I double click to answer your question, I'm just letting that sit in the background because if he makes a mistake or something goes wrong and he misses his target, which by the way, when he jumps, that target is the size of a stamp. So he's going to navigate from 30,000 feet to hit the size of a stamp when he jumps. Obviously gets bigger as he gets closer. Is that if he misses that target, it's binary. He, he dies and he's not crazy. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got a beautiful child. He's got a wonderful family structure, zero craziness about him. And you say, well, how does he do it? He's made, he uses his mind. He uses his imagination to create a compelling, meaningful, exciting, thrilling future. And then from that imagination, he works backwards to develop a plan. Now, this is the, so that's the commitment. I'm sorry. Those are the, that's the fundamental decision he makes is he, once he locks onto it, then he backs into it and he makes a fundamental commitment to build the technical skills, the physical skills and the mental skills to be fully locked in to pursue that idea of his compelling future. 
that's how the greats work. Everybody told him he was crazy. Everybody told him it can't be done. Everybody told him he's going to break his back. He's going to miss. It's why do it. You've got a beautiful family. There's all these trade wins, not to mix metaphors, against why he shouldn't go toward this image that was compelling to him. So most people don't use their imagination to see a compelling future. And then most people, when they dare to do that, then when they share it with other people, they get knocked around that that's crazy. Why would you think you could make a million dollars a year? That's crazy. Why would you think that you could be a pro athlete? Have a safe bet, have a backup. You know, whatever the narrative from the neighborhood, from the larger culture, from whatever, like there's a narrative that often our world is not designed. How about this? Our world is not designed for you to be great. That is your responsibility. And if you don't use this radically powerful imagination that you have and the ability to, to use your internal resources and muster your external resources, resources toward that aim, we don't become close to knowing what we're really capable of. And so that's how the extraordinaries do it. They see it, they feel it, they share it, they find their community, they chip all in to be great physically, technically, and mentally, and then they put it on the line. And then they build from there. Well, one thing that you say is that the romantic version of change is that we observe a shift in our physical, psychological, or environmental conditions, and we recognize we need to make a change. We confront the challenge, we take the risk, make the change, and then reap the rewards. Unfortunately, that's more the exception than the rule. And you say we hit rock bottom or the pain becomes intolerable. Intolerable. We're forced to reexamine how we are working in the world my experience, pain is often what makes us change. And I, I've always wondered about this because I always wondered, like, I think it, uh, Eric Wall who told me, he said, you know, Soren Kierkegaard said that all change is preceded by crisis. And I always wondered, like, is that necessary? Like, and if so, why? Yeah, that isn't that, isn't that like, I don't know, it leaves a residue of like, does it have to be this way? And I don't know if it has to be. I mean, I'm a, I'm learning as much as I am every day that I ever have. And I wouldn't double down that it has to be. And I know what I wrote, I stand by, which is pain is the reason we change. You know, and that pain can also, you could also put in the word suffering. And when you feel your suffering, when you can recognize suffering in others, you know, that begets change as well. But one of the dis, disservices we do to other people, friends, family members, and sometimes, you know, psychotherapists even do this, is that we hear and feel another person's pain and we say, okay, it's going to be okay. Maybe not. That's trying to add comfort to a situation as opposed to helping them feel that pain so they can make some fundamental decisions. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not, I, I'm not getting another DUI. And I would... I bring that up because I was just recently in working with um, an organization that uh, is helping people through transition on alcohol and drug. And so too many of us have uh, issues. Uh, I've got issues in my family. Too many of us have issues when it comes to numbing pain. And so I'm working with this organization and there's a gentleman that he's day one in his uh, 30-day treatment for his addiction. And he's there by court. So he didn't come there on his own. Day one, we're at a round table. There's about 12 people in the room. And um, I'm not, I'm not 
part of this group. I'm observing to be able to see how they work. So to see if this is a place that I want to send people to. And um, he says, look, I'm here because I'm court mandated. I thought I had it all together. CEO of a company doing great, a couple million dollars in the bank account and uh, had one too many cocktails. And I ran over a 15 year old kid. And um, now I'm here because I murdered that, that kid. And you could see that he's gotten to a place where that was the level of pain before he stopped drinking and driving. Before that, he was just, he was bullshitting himself. You know, he was, he was saying, ah, everyone, you know, like, ah, one or two, I'm okay. He had three that night. And you know what? A lot of lives have changed. So what I'm saying in this kind of gravitas way is I'm encouraging people to feel their suffering, to recognize their pain so that from that place, they can make honest and fundamental commitments in their life about who they want to be and how they're going to go about it. Because that's what the best in the world teach us. They're clear about who they want to be, what they want to be doing, and how they're going to go about training their craft, their body, and their mind to be about it. And I wish there was another way, but I don't, I, uncomfortableness is how we grow, but pain is the reason we change. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, you also talk about the different phases of fear of people's opinions, and you say that FOPO is interpersonal dependent, but it's an interpersonal experience. It's a thought, feeling, or perception that takes place within an individual interdependent, but the experience is driven by the individual's concerns about how they're perceived by others, how their actions or choices will be received by others interdependent. And then you go through these phases, anticipation, checking. Can you walk us through those phases and explain the role that they each play? Yeah, for sure. Let's first um, land on this idea that your brain, again, is optimized for, for survival. So our ancestry passed down this highly tuned ability to scan the world and find dangers. We no longer have wildebeests. We no longer have the saber tooths that we're, you know, having a fight. So, so one of the messages that is very clear to the brain is one of the most dangerous things in the world is the critique of others. You say, why is that? Because getting kicked out of the tribe was nearly a death sentence, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Because it was too much to manage with you and your spouse and a couple kids and maybe a cousin, safety and uh, um, hunting and gathering and building a fire and like it was too much. So our brain is highly tuned to scan for acceptance because belonging is safety. And it's highly tuned to pick up the first registry of potential rejection. Again, rejection from a person triggers this ancient brain to say rejection uh, from the tribe. This could get really good. So you know what? Or I'm sorry, this could get really bad. So you know what? We need to conform. We need to contort. We need to adjust in some way. We need to abandon what we thought was a good idea, you know, from the way we're presenting or performing or thinking and just contort to be accepted. So there's three phases. The first is this high level of anticipation where we are worrying well before we arrive at the quote unquote social event. And we're worrying about, you know, 
what might they think? And, you know, as concrete as it could start off as, um, you know, when you're in your closet, pick out the clothes that you're going to wear to work or a meeting or whatever. And instead of picking the things that are authentic and comfortable and that you're vibing with, that you're thinking, you know, how's Denzel going to think about what I'm wearing? How is Roger thinking about what I'm wearing? How is Jane going to think about this? Do I look good? You know, do I look good as opposed to do I feel good? So there's this playing out scenarios to gauge the likelihood of acceptance or rejection from other people. That's the bulk of FOPO. That's how it shows up for the majority of us. And then when we're actually in connection with another person or group of people, we go to phase two, which is checking. So we're relentlessly scanning for external cues of acceptance or rejection. We're picking up micro cues, expressions. We're trying to interpret what do they mean by what they say? What do they mean by not saying anything at all? What is that frown? Is that a frown? Or is it, is he, or she thinking? So we're trying to check in to see if we're okay. We're externalizing our sense of being okay to another person. That's the big problem with FOPO. And then we respond. This is phase three. So we, we, we respond. When we're mired in this, we're responding after taking in the perceived cues. We will, conf- we will contort, we'll conform, we'll laugh at a joke that is mildly offensive. We will smile like we know the movie they're talking about to not look stupid. We will, you know, go along with something that we think is wrong, but we're not sure if we can say it here. Sometimes we will critique other people and that's a way to be on the right side as if this is the right side, the right side of not being critiqued and judged ourselves, we start to flex some power to critique other people, which is a terrible spiral to be in, of course. And then ultimately, like the, one of the ways we respond is we just kind of disconnect. We're like, look, I don't, I don't feel safe here. I don't think this is going to work. I feel overwhelmed. So I'm just not going to go to these social events anymore. I'm not even going to bother trying. So that's kind of the last phase. And so again, it's anticipation. It's a checking to see if we're okay. And then it's a compromised responding. Well, you go on from that to talk about this idea of systematic desensitization. Uh, so how does that that actually work in this context? Because I was even thinking about it in the context of my own life. And it's always like, I think the thing that I'm like, I need to be desensitized to checking our bank balance because I'm always freaked out about it. <laughs> no. um, yeah, okay. So systematic desensitization uh, is a very technical term for applied psych- psychologists. And some people might be familiar with the term flooding. And so it's basically a way to help extinguish fear in another person, but very specific fear. So phobias is really where this comes from. And um, the close cousin to FOPO, FOPO, fear of people's opinions, is not a clinical condition. This is not a psychological disorder. This is the excessive worry. This is the excessive outsourcing a sense of being okay. And the, the, the second cousin or the cousin to this, and again, I'll use a very technical term in psychology is called allodoxophobia, which is a fear of others' opinions. And now that's just raised into a phobia, which is a clinical disorder. So systematic desensitization, flooding, another way to think about it is a way to eliminate or extinguish a specific fear. And in the book, we talk about a Cy Young Award winner, one of the best pitchers in the world. And he's got this fear of failure, but really it's a fear of not being good enough in the eyes of others. So we apply 
good science rigor, applied science rigor to his fear. And over a course of, you know, a bit of time, doing this systematic desensitizing him to the, the fear triggers over time, that trigger of fear becomes less valuable. You learn how to work with it well over time. And on the other side of the, the um, applied scientific process, you find a sense of freedom. You find a sense of like, I'm no longer afraid of snakes. Oh my gosh, I'm no longer afraid of spiders. Oh look, I'm no longer afraid of what people might be thinking of me. So you can apply good science of psychology to uh, your fears. And that's, I hope that uh, the book clarifies that. Well, let's, let's actually take this with a practical example, like the one I gave you of something as simple as, okay, like I fear checking my bank balance, as ridiculous as that sounds, considering I'm running a company, I need to be able to do that. Yeah, I would hope so. I, I don't know if it raises to the threshold of it being a disorder. Yeah. Or it's just a, an excessive worry about it. And so is, it's not a disorder, right? You can actually check and not yeah. be overwhelmed, yeah, you know, for the course. 30 minutes, you know, yeah. it's not deep distress. It's more of like a mild, um, anxiousness to make sure that you've got enough resources. Is that yeah. right? Sounds about right. Yeah. How, how, yeah. How would you welcome to entrepreneurship for sure? How would you like to think about, um, checking your bank account? Well, I don't want it to be this thing where every time I like have to do it, it's something I'm kind of like terrified that there might not be enough or that, you know, hey, in my mind, it's always like, oh, how much longer before we run out of money? And I remember there's a point at which my old business partner told me, he said, I think it's time we stop asking that question. And you start asking, how do we make sure we have enough? Well, either way. So it's just interesting enough. I said, how do you want to think about it? Yeah. And you gave me another narrative. Um, which still answering the same question, not the question I asked. So the question I asked is, how do you want to think about it? And you told me once again, like how you don't want to think about it. So that's going back to me asking you to use your imagination to think about a compelling future, you know, an interesting future. So let, let, let's try it one more time. Like, how do you want to think about, um, you checking your, your bank account? Uh, it's just something that is on a to-do list and not something that causes any stress or anxiety. And it's just, you know, part of day-to-day operations of running the business. There you go. And when you do check, how do you want that experience to feel? Basically light, effortless, like, hey, okay, it's a number. Great. You know, things are cool. Okay. So you want to check it for um, uh, concrete information. So yeah. More factual, right? And you're making it emotional. Okay. So what is the thinking that you would like to have to precede the emotional experience that, that you'd like to have? So how do you want to think about it? Uh, I want to think that there's nothing to worry about here. Okay. No, no. Flip it. Like say it positively. Oh, that would be, that would be like avoiding the bullseye. I just don't want to miss the bullseye. Right. So yeah. So I want to think that we have more than enough resources, uh, to be just fine. Okay. That, that's interesting because you might check and it's not that. Yeah. You might check for whatever reason and you've got a, you know, you're in a cash flow moment where you've got, you know, you've got a cash flow issue or something. Sure. So, so let's, let's drill it right down and maybe you've got a hundred million dollars in the bank account and it's a different, you and I are having a different conversation, right? Unless you've got a hundred million, um, cash flow issue. Yeah. But let's say that you've got, Enough in your bank account. Cash flow is fine. How would you like to think about when you check it? 
give me the concrete, bring me right into like the fabric of the thoughts that you'd like to have. Well, I think that for me, it would be, there's more than enough and we're going to be able to do some really amazing things. Okay. So that's thinking about money in general yeah. in your bank account. And I'm, I'm trying to drill down even one more, which is like, I think, let me see if I could get us there. It'd be something like, um, it's four o'clock, end of the day, I'm checking cash flow. I want to see what our numbers look like so I can make better decisions tomorrow. Yeah, I think that sounds so right. So that's thinking, right? So that's like the concreteness of thinking. And if you wanted to, if you wanted to be, you wanted to hit more baseballs, okay? I would suggest like that you're a professional in the profession, professional league. I'd say get your thinking right as you're warming up and have a specific thought there. And then get your thinking right when you walk on deck and then have a way of thinking right when you get into the batter's box, you know, when you're over the plate. And so we're just, we're trying to illuminate specific moments of time to practice the way you want to enter into that experience. And if left, if you practice it, you're more likely to hit that way of thinking and your thinking and your emotions, they work hand in hand. And if left untrained or undesigned or unchecked, of course, money is a source of anxiety for people that are trying to manage complicated business flow. Of course, because when we run out of money, we run out of, you know, uh, limited options. And so, so I, it's that simple, you know, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be over simplistic here, but it's not more complicated than that. You just practice it over time. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, the concept of a performance-based identity. You say that a performance-based identity is prone to episodes of unconscious self-sabotage. We set ourselves up for failure to avoid finding out whether we would have failed. We build in an excuse for ourselves in the event the results don't meet our expectations. And you go on to say that a performance-based identity is not sustainable over time. Our ancient brains are hardwired to detect threats in an environment, but they're not very good at distinguishing between threats to our physical self and our social self. And yet we live in this world where this performance-based identity is so per pervasive that we have something like a college admission scandal, you know, where parents are obsessed with their kids' performance. And that's just like one layer of this. I, I love that you're sharing that excerpt because um, I'll, I'll share with you a research, a bit of research that we did. And this was at Red Bull. And we did, we designed an experiment with for Ricky Fowler, uh, one of the great golfers uh, on the tour. And um, so there's three subjects. There was Ricky Fowler, world's, what a world's best. There was the local pro. So this was kind of the local skilled person. And then there was the weekend hack, you know, the, 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 the person who just shows up and plays every once in a while. And we walk them through three conditions of pressure. And on the first condition, it was, we just threw around 15 balls and, and said, okay, see how many, see how many it takes to get into the, to the hole. And we brought out, um, one camera and me as the quote lab coat expert person with a clipboard. And then after each, each kind of this low pressure moment, we asked each of them, like, how'd you do? And the weekend person said, yeah, uh, I don't know, did what I normally do. The local pro said, whew, that was tough. Like, there's a little extra pressure. You were watching and there was a camera here. Like, I did okay. And then we asked Ricky Fowler, world's best. How'd you do? He goes, um, he goes, no, I did what I do. And so matter of fact, but he had missed uh, three balls. 
And I said, well, how many, uh, I said, you missed three. And he goes, no, no, no. I, um, I made, let's say it's 15. Uh, he said, I made 14 good shots. I go, right, but you missed three because now I made 14 good shots. I said, right, but you missed three. And he said, no, I committed to 14 shots. On one shot, I saw the line. I knew what I needed to do, but I didn't focus and commit all the way through. So I'm 14 for 15. I don't care what your scoreboard says. Oh, that's pretty cool. Okay. So now we go, I'll skip the middle layer of pressure, but we go to the final layer of pressure. We bring out a galley of people. We've got like five cameras, a big boom camera that's sweeping across, just like you would imagine on a crane. And we've got money on the line. If you miss, there's a consequence. You're going to look bad and you're going to have to pay some money. Okay. Ricky Fowler, we're measuring his brain, his heart rate. We're measuring everything, brain activity and heart rate. He does exactly what we imagined. He got really intense, high focus, right to that threshold where his brain was going. Keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. He puts, and then right after he puts, there's a release. And you see this amplification, like he he let the lid off. Finally, he could let the lid off because you know he was done with the activity. This big flood of emotion, brain activity, and then he would return quickly to a baseline. The local pro. Oh, and then let's do the weekend hack. He barely got his attention up. He didn't care. He's like, listen, uh, it's not very good. So I'm just going to try my best. And the local pro, his heart rate, everything was well over a baseline threshold. And he was like, all the, everything was in red, if you would imagine from a bio data uh, observation. And afterwards we said, what was that like? He said, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Okay. Why is that? Okay, now the kind of kind of pin that story for a minute. Why did the local best in the neighborhood, best in the region person struggle the most? Because he completely built his identity around how well he performs. So he has what's called a performance-based identity. Ricky Fowler had a purpose-driven identity. And the local person, his identity was not wrapped at all around golf. So he had great freedom. Very little skill, but great freedom. Ricky Fowler had a purpose driven. His purpose was to execute with great fidelity on each skill. The performance-based identity is the problem. This is the local pro. He was, uh, he wrapped his identity around how well he did relative to what others thought of him. Most of us suffer from a performance-based identity where we are over-connected to how well we do. And so how well we do is a reflection of who we are. And that is a massive opportunity to wake up from that constriction. And so it's a big on-ramp to FOPO is, you know, when, when our sense of self is connected to how well we do relative to others, we are constantly under a sense of threat. And so what we want to do, the off-ramp here, is we want to build our identity on who we are, not what we do, not how well we do it, not who we do it with, and not where we do it, but we want to build it based on purpose. And that crosswalk from a performance-based identity to a purpose-based identity, it is like you're living in two different realities. It's unbelievably freeing when you can make that crosswalk. 
and I make it sound easy. It's not. It takes time. It takes a commitment to move from performance to purpose. Wow. Uh, well, on that note, I want to bring back a clip from our previous conversation uh, when you talked about two different types of people. Take a listen. I'm cautious to say there's two types of people, but there are some very noticeable trends for people is that some folks are deeply engaged in wanting to grow. And you you can be, when you're around them, you notice because they're all in and they're hungry to learn. They're applying what they've learned. They're doing something with what they just learned. They're adding it to their scaffolding in a way that um, is not just taking information to make it work for them, but they're figuring out how it works for their psychological framework. <laughs> and I don't know if you can just make a decision like I want to be like that. I think, of course, all things in my mind do start with decisions that are kind of that correlate and swim together with our genetic coding. But um, it's not quite as clean because it goes from decision making to action to habit, you know, to testing that habit in in progressively intense environments. It's kind of the clip that allows people to be able to stand in their own two feet and say, you know, this is what I've learned and not be afraid of what other people think of that journey. So I brought back that clip in particular because this is one of the things that I always am really curious about when I get to talk to people like you. How much of this is nature versus nurture? Like when you're talking about the kinds of people that you work with, like how many of them are just bred that way and how many, how many people can actually become that way? Oh, I think that that's a cool question. Um, genetics matter and each of us have our own genetic coding. It, it, it's really important to identify that um, there are things that, you know, we were given from our ancestry that, I don't know, are facilitated in the modern environment and some that aren't so great. And however, you, our job is to maximize uh, the coding that we're given. And that's where deliberate practice, you know, Anders Eriksson's, you know, original work, deliberate practice makes all the difference. And so there are so, there is so much that we have to learn and to grow and to get better at that it feels like if you're not careful, you could become easily overwhelmed with the way or the path to get better and the skills required, or you could be almost obsessed with it. So there is a middle path here to make daily improvements on what matters most to you. And I would say that um, whatever your genetic coding is, nod to it. You know, like, what am I going to do? Like, but I, there's things that are good that I was given that I had nothing to do with. And there's things that aren't so good in modern relevance that, you know, that's a bummer. Like, I wish I was six foot four. I'm not. I, I don't know how tall you wish you were, but like, I wish I was. I'm not, I can't do anything about it. So I'm maximizing the other stuff that, um, that, that is, you know, I have volitional control over. And I think it's a really clearly untapped resource to invest in your psychology, your psychological skills, so that you can be at home with yourself wherever you are, so that you can be settled into the present moment and give yourself a chance to be your very best in an unpredictable world around us. And that is a skill worth investing in. And it's, it's not that hard to, to know what those skills are, but it does take some discipline because psychology is invisible. And you know, that, that's part of my life purpose as well. 
So two questions specifically around this. I have a one-year-old nephew and one of the things that I marvel at daily is the rate at which he learns. Like he'll struggle with something on Monday and by Wednesday he's mastered it. It's effortless. And I've noticed that that seems to slow down with age. And I've asked numerous people about this. I asked Daniel Coyle and I remember him telling me, we're talking about musical instruments in particular. He said, look, He's like, you're going to open for Guns N' Roses at their next concert? Absolutely not. He said, can you get good enough to impress the shit out of your friends and family? He's like, yeah, totally. Um, so talk to me about that as it relates to age. Like, what is going on? Well, there's the pruning effect. There's like, there's, there's a, you know, the whole body of study of neuroscience has a better understanding of what's happening there. But what I, the way I enter the conversation is um, when we're young, we're experimenting. We are uh, less consumed with how we look. We're more interested in unlocking something and figuring something out. So we're not constricted by the way we look in the eyes of others. And so if we can be a little bit more like that on a regular basis, like be more tuned to what we want to figure out or unlock or get better at and less tuned to looking a certain way or being accepted, I think we end up finding a freer way of living. And, and then the other thing is like running experiments that are exciting. So that's what you just described, you know, your one-year-old is doing is running a little mini experiment. It's, of course, there's not a conscious design, like I'm going to run an experiment. Yeah. But as an adult, I think that that's the way to think about it is like stay stimulated, stay trying to figure things out. And your brain is always on all the time, but trying to figure out how to muster interesting resources to use different parts of your, your humanness to unlock the things that matter to you. And so I think we can get cute and say do crossword puzzles, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like, be, have a compelling future, be invested in something that matters to you and keep chipping in. And if you feel like, look, I'm at a nine to five, you don't get it. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm being managed and I'm exhausted by the time I get home. I have no way of figuring out how to do what you're just suggesting. Part of the unlock, I think, is, of course, you need to meet the shared vision of the corporation you're with or the company you're with. Know their purpose, okay? But also know your purpose. And if you can figure out how to put those two together, now you've got a a reason why you're grinding or working because your purpose is, um, in some respects, more important than the purpose of the company. And that's... I say that with all respect for some of the multinationals and, and, and CEOs and founders. Like, yeah, I, I know what I'm saying feels blasphemous, but we need people to work inside of our, the company's purpose and mission and bring theirs too. So it's not like a, an extraction of the best of our employee base, but it's a figuring out how the company can be in service of the individual's purpose. And when you, Get that one and one together, it's like 11. And there's a deep rising tide. So I, there's a better way. And if you don't bring your, your purpose into the mix, uh, you're just going to be in service of the company's purpose, which I'm not sure is the best way to go through life. Well, I have two final questions for you. Uh, one thing that I wonder about is based on your research, your knowledge, your experience, what do you think we should be teaching about this in school? We're talking like primary education. 
I think first order of business is I did not receive information on how my mind works and how I could train the five basic mental skills until I studied it in graduate school. So I went from grade school to high school to undergraduate, and I still didn't get what the basic five mental skills are that we can all train. I didn't learn it in sport. And so I needed it. I needed it as a person. And I can't believe I had to go, you know, 18 years of education to get my arms around it. So square one, teach the basic mental skills um, at a very young age. And those are some of those basic skills are using your imagination for a compelling future. So performance imagery is what we learned from, from athletics. Um, goal setting. It's, I think we're kind of doing it in an okay way, but the way the most powerful people use goal setting is that they set daily goals that are 100% under their control. So they're not trying to set goals that are outside of their control because they want to be in a highly leveraged position. They want to have great leverage in their life. So setting goals that are 100% under your control is right at the center of it. Knowing how to calm yourself down and work with your arousal level. So knowing how to be calm, that's a skill. Knowing how to be confident, that's a skill. Knowing how to ready yourself both in physical form and mental form before you're about to go do something. Pre-performance routines, that's a skill. So, um, and then the kind of the big one of all is mindfulness and meditation. And I can't imagine, I cannot find another way through um, the keyhole of high performance, the keyhole of mastery without having awareness. Awareness of how thoughts and emotions work and awareness how the world around you works. Without awareness, you're not even in the game. And so we get mindfulness is one of the great ways to increase awareness. So there's a handful of them right there that I think are available, pretty simple practices. And until we get them into the rhythm of school, we're going to unfortunately have people um, late into adulthood trying to figure out how to apply those while they're in a very busy you know, way of living. So get it in school early. Well, <clears throat> this has been incredible. Uh, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? yourself you know and so that that it factor is when you have an ability to be fully present authentically yourself in any condition where the external world does not dictate your internal experience where the conditions outside of you are not the are not determining how you're going to experience a moment that takes discipline it takes a commitment to work from the inside out it is evidence of the first rule of mastery is that you know how to have a command of your experience in life and you bring yourself into the unfolding worlds around you. That is when you become the, when you have the it experience, when you are unmistakable in how you show up. It's that grounded, authentic, authentic. It's that grounded, authentic way of being in the present moment, wherever you are. To me, that's excellence. Being at home with yourself in any environment. Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with all of us. This is a deep rabbit hole. I feel like we could talk for three hours about this and not even come close to, to scratching the surface. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the new book, and everything else you're up to? I want to say thank you for including me in your community. What you've built is noticed and it's wonderful. And 
Um, I, I hope I've done a service to the time that we've allocated here. The best place to drive to is findingmastery.com. And so there you can find our podcast, Finding Mastery, also, uh, obviously. And you can um, also, hopefully, you'll be inspired enough to press yes to buy one or a handful of books, you know, on our pre-order launch of the book. The book comes out November 7th, but the whole the whole thing I'm trying to shake loose is like, ask people to be part of the pre-experience. And so you can find that findingmastery.com forward slash book. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? 
We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.